Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, we are going to be in the book of Titus. The book of Titus, we finished up a series uh, in 1 John last week. We're starting a new short series. About three weeks is the plan here, Lord willing. Uh, we're going to go through the book of Titus about a chapter a week, um, starting this week. And so uh, we're titling this series, Good Church, Good Life. Um, a lot of believers, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, as many of us, not most of us are this morning, or at least we would profess that this morning, um, most would say, I want to live a good life, and I want to go and be a part of a good church. And I've never met a Christian in all my years that have said, you know, I really want to be a part of a pitiful, a pitiful church. You know, what kind of church are you looking for? A crummy one, a pitiful one, an ungodly one, an unevangelistic one. Um, give me that. That's the kind of church. I want. Nobody says that, even if they go to a pitiful church. They don't want to, They don't think it's a pitiful church. Nobody wants that. Nobody says, I want to be a, a pitiful, ungodly, rebellious, disobedient Christian. That's, that's really what I'm going for. No, we want to live a good life before the Lord. We want to be a part of a good church. That's just a common thing that we can all say we want. Even if you're not a Christian and you're just here because someone invited you and you happen to be here today, you, you want to live a good life. And if you were to go to church, you would hope that it wouldn't stink, that it would be a good church. And by good, what I, want to, I want to say what I mean by that this morning. We're going to see this theme throughout Titus. But by good, I mean we want to do good things and be a part of a good church that does good in the eyes of God and to their fellow man. I want to be a part of a good church. I want to be a part of a church that, that, that honors God and that, that, that God would say that's a good church. Not so much that I would say that's a good church or that you would say that's a good church or that Joe Schmo down the street would say that's a good church, but, but a church that in God's eyes is a, a good church, a church that, that obeys God and a church that does God's will, that is seeking the best we can to, to follow God's plan. You know, I don't just pastor here at North Park. I, I go to church here, right? This is my church too. Uh, I attend here. I'm a member here. My wife sits under this preaching, right, that you have to sit under every week. My children are involved in the, in the children's ministry. Me and my wife come in here and we, we sing songs together as we worship together with you. We, this, is, this is my, my church, my, my home church. This is, where, this is where we do life and are, are seeking to grow together in Christ and serve God together. So it's more than just being a, a pastor here. So before I'm a pastor this morning, um, I am a Christian. I am a husband. I am a dad. And I am a church member. In fact, <laughs> we're going to see this morning... I'm a pitiful church member, <laughs> or a pitiful husband, or a pitiful father. I got no business being a pastor because I'd make a pretty pitiful pastor. The good news of Jesus this morning is that the gospel, the good news, makes it possible for us to live good lives and be a part of a good church. And Titus is going to kind of tell us what that looks like over the next three weeks. God's goodness in the gospel, as revealed in the gospel, makes us into what he deems are good people and us into what he deems a good church. We can, we can aim for that. We can strive for that by his grace. And the word good or goodness appears in the book of Titus about ten times. And it's, you know, it's on about two pages, barely two pages in your Bible. It's three chapters. And over and over again you see that word good or goodness, good works, good faith, good teaching. Over and over again, God's goodness is kind of a theme in Titus. And Titus was one of Paul's preacher boys, one of his guys, one of his mentees. He had, he had mentored him much like you might think of Timothy. He had left him behind, we're going to see this morning, in a place called Crete in 
That's where Titus is uh, when he receives this letter from the Apostle Paul. And Titus is finishing up establishing churches that had been planted uh, and were being established there on this island of Crete um, in, this, in this local area. And they needed leaders. And they needed false teaching address that was going around the area and, was, and, and it had filtered the church, infiltrated the church. They needed, as he, we're going to see this morning, things, quote-unquote, put in order, as Paul will say. And in this letter to Titus, Paul stresses the importance of how our faith is supposed to impact our lifestyle. He stresses the importance of being godly. If you were to sum up the main theme of the book, it would be godliness, I believe. And because in God's eyes, a good life and a good church is a godly church and is a godly life. So look with me in Titus chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16, taking a chunk at a time. Let's start in verses 1 through 5. Titus chapter 1 started in verses 1 through 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child and a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Let's pause there. So Paul calls himself here, and this is kind of a pretty common introduction, but a, for Paul even, a fairly lengthy introduction, especially for a short book. And he calls himself there a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to note there that Paul didn't see the churches that he served as his churches, right? They're Jesus' churches. He's a servant of God, an apostle, a messenger, a sent one of Jesus. They're Jesus' churches. He serves God. He serves Jesus. The church has and always will belong to Jesus. Not us, not me. Jesus. It's his church. He died for it. And then this opening paragraph you'll see is just kind of soaked in the gospel. It's Jesus that Paul serves. It's faith in Jesus he longs to see people express, right? He says, I want to see them. Uh, God's elect and their, uh, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel and their knowledge of the truth, right? And he goes on to say, and hope of eternal life, right? It's the gospel that secures that for us. He says, God promised this eternal life before the ages, and he manifested it in his word. What word? The word of the gospel message through the preaching Paul was doing, all right? So it's all about, this is just coded there and implicitly in the gospel and there's a key phrase, though, that I want you to just kind of underline. You can mark it. It's a key phrase in this passage that, will, that kind of shapes the rest of the book, and it's the phrase, knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. If, if you were to sum up Titus like a theme, that's kind of the theme of Titus. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. This is sort of the theme of the book. And that means this. The truth is meant to be put into practice. Belief should change behavior. Truth you know and believe in your heart should make you into a godly person. This idea colors the whole book. And a good church, Paul would have us know, will be a godly church, a church that's godly. A good Christian is someone who is godly. And Paul is concerned about the health of the church. He, also, he obviously wants it put into order, right? He wants it established. He wants, he wants a healthy church there. And he'd have us know that a healthy church is a godly church. And so I want to give you three marks of a good church. There's a lot more than this, but just from Titus chapter 1, three marks of a good church. And the first one right here is kind of a theme of the book. Number one, a good church must value and pursue godliness, right? Knowledge of the truth 
which accords with godliness. One commentator pointed out how that phrase shows the link between faith, truth, and knowledge. Right? He says, I, I, he wants the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. In other words, we are to believe, have faith in Christ, when we hear the truth of the gospel, and then we're to grow in the knowledge of God's truth revealed in his word, the Bible. And as we do that, we should grow in godliness. There should be a practical application of that. Truth is in accord with godliness. They, they, they're running on the same track, not different tracks. They are in accord with you. They are in unison. And truth rightly applied should produce godliness. They go together. Now, what is godliness? Godliness is the idea of believing and behaving in line with the truth about God. It's about believing rightly about God and then living in accordance with that right belief. That's what a godly person does. They don't just, they don't just live a certain way. They believe a certain way. And so they believe rightly about God, and then that has an impact on how they live. That's a godly person. The godness of God, who God is and the truth of God, is impacting their behavior. A godly person, in short, is someone who knows God, who loves God, and who obeys God. It's that simple. Godliness is a lifestyle that says to the world, the gospel is true. Take a look. The gospel is true. Take a look. The godliness of God's people, yes, it glorifies God, right? It makes much of him. It displays his grace and his power to save and rescue and, and to purify us. And at the same time, it aids in us evangelizing the world because it supports the message. When we say Jesus saves, our lives are supposed to display, hey, Jesus saves. Jesus saves from sin, right? Look, my life is being changed. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And when we live a godly lifestyle and we bear that message, they go hand in hand. Just living the godly lifestyle will not evangelize the world. But we can't evangelize properly if we don't live the godly lifestyle that the gospel demands that we live. When I was a teenager, I was, you know, I went through these phases that I don't go through now where I was like 140, 50 pounds soaking wet no matter what I did. And I played sports, you know. I, I attempted to be an athlete. So I so I, I made good faith effort, right? So I, I remember, I, you know, baseball or others playing football. I, I wanted to gain weight. I wanted to get bigger. I wanted to get stronger. And so I went on this little kick where I found these uh, these protein shakes that you had to mix at home. Anybody ever familiar with those? I don't know how, how that works now because I haven't needed a protein shake in a while. But um, they would serve them in this big, can you'd buy them in these big cans like this. And they tasted horrible. I mean, they were horrible. And you would just use like whole milk or something and mix it up like the you know, fattest milk you could find, you know, buttermilk. The whole milk, mix that thing up, and, you know, you get the vanilla or chocolate. I'd put extra stuff in there, right? Peanut butter, cho chocolate to help with the calories, but also to help with the taste. Now, here's the thing. There was one particular brand that I always was attracted to buy. It had nothing to do with the taste. It was a brand called Joe Weeder, okay? That was the brand. He was like a bodybuilder or something, I guess. I don't know. I think he's still out there, but that, that was the brand. And there was this logo on the front that was just, like, maybe it was Joe, I don't know, but it was this massive guy, right, that was like ripped, right, and huge arms and huge muscles, and it was like, that's the can I'm going to buy, right? That's the one I'm going to buy. I want the one that, they don't put the 150-pound soaking wet skinny dude on the front of the can, right? That's the guy that's buying the stuff, but that's not the guy they use to sell the stuff. They, should, they want you to believe that this stuff works, and when our lives folks, are different than the world around us. When we live a godly life changed by the gospel, 
when we have knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness, we shout to the world, those in Christ really are a new creation. We really are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's not an ad for our goodness or our morality, but for God's saving grace. It puts it on display in our lifestyle. Now, this was a big deal in Crete, where Titus was. Crete was a notoriously ungodly, sinful place. Down in verse 12, that we'll read here in a minute. I'm just going to go ahead and read it to you, that verse to you, though. Paul, Paul says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There was actually what Paul refers to, this guy he refers to as a prophet, was a philosopher whom they heralded probably as a prophet uh, locally. And he had said that about 600 B.C. So that was a quote that had been around a long time. And he said that about his hometown. And in fact, the town was so notorious for lying that Crete was, what, the name of that town was referenced in slang in a way of, of a synonym with lying, Right? And so it was that they had worked the name into the slang vernacular around the area for what it means to lie. They were so notorious. Lie. One commentator noted, a couple of different ones, how they were known for one particular lie, which was that Zeus's tomb was located there on their island. And everybody's like, you know, give me a break, right? And so, I mean, well, they weren't even good liars. But so he, their own people, their own prophet, you're, we're all liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Now, you notice in Paul's intro, he says the phrase, God promised eternal life before the ages. God promised. And he says, God who does not lie. Now, he says that on one account so that we'll understand that it's a real thing and God keeps his promises. But there's an underlying other thing, which is this. Paul is showing that God is different than their culture. Crete is known and notorious for lying. It's no happenstance that in the intro, Paul says, and God doesn't lie. Right? He, he's different than they are. He's different than we are. He, he's not a sinner like us. He doesn't lie. So here you have this ungodly place where there's a church that has been established. There are Christians there now, but the place they live in, that they go to work in, that they shop in, is notoriously dishonest, brutish, drunk, and lazy. It's a wicked place. And that's the reputation of the city and all the regions around it. And we've got cities and, and places in, in America that we think like that. There are probably parts of even our town and even central Florida that people think of and stigmatize in certain ways. Well, that's Greek. And there's a church there, right in the middle of all that mess. And it was important that the church at Crete, right? Crete Baptist Church, whatever you want to call it. It was important that they be different than Crete. That it be an honest, good, self-controlled, godly people that represented God well because that's the whole point. They, they were representatives of Christ. They needed to realize that the truth that they had come to believe should lead to godliness in their life. They were, there were false teachers among them that we'll talk about here in a little bit who, who were ungodly in their lifestyle and their teaching only left people in ungodliness and, and left people in their lost state. By their ungodliness... They were showing that they were not true followers of Christ. And for the church at Crete, by their godliness, they needed to testify to the life-changing power of the gospel. They needed to stand out and be different than these other people who still look like the world around them. And so they needed to value and pursue godliness just like we do. Because, listen, you will not pursue what you do not value. 
if being godly, and by being godly, we've already talked about what that means. If being godly, if, know, if believing rightly about God and behaving in accordance with that, knowing God, loving God, and obeying God, if that's, if that's not something you value, it will not be something you pursue. And the false teachers, they didn't pursue or value godliness. Their, their values are still worldly. And a church that, that values and pursues godliness is made up of people that value and pursue. We, we can't, as a body, value and pursue godliness as if as individual members, we're pursuing the world. Doesn't work that way. The mission statement is worthless if the people don't live on mission. The church is not the website. It's not simply the Sunday morning gathering. It, it, it's us. It's you. and it, It's me. It's us as a body. And then scattered throughout the week, we've got to value and pursue godliness if we're to live on mission in our city. It's not just about growing in the knowledge of the truth as we gather together. You can memorize the book of Revelation. Good for you. And have it all figured out. Get it all mapped out. But if it's not helping you live a godly life, you've missed the point. We, do not, we need to be aware of not divorcing what we know and believe from what we do. What we know and believe is supposed to affect how we live. That's the point of what it means to value and pursue God. Good church, corporately and as individuals, value and pursues godliness. Look at verse 5. We're going to continue reading. Well, back at the beginning of verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, he says, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, lover of good, self-control, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Number two. A good church must appoint and follow godly leaders. A good church must appoint and follow godly leaders. Leadership in the church is key. If a church is to value and pursue godliness in a culture that doesn't love God or his truth, it must have leadership that models godliness and encourages it in the body. So here he's talking about the appointment of elders. What does that mean? We don't see that term a lot in our churches. We don't use it a lot here. It's, well, it's a synonymous used prolifically in the New Testament, and it's synonymous with pastor. Pastors and elders are the same office. In fact, the term elder is probably used more than pastor in the New Testament. We tend to use the word pastor more, maybe because it's more visually descriptive. And, you know, when we think of elder, we think of someone who is older, and the idea that it's conveying is maturity in faith, right? Maturity of faith, spiritual maturity. It speaks to a lot more than age maturity. And in verses 6 through 9, Paul lays out the qualifications there of chapter 1. Paul lays out the qualifications of those that serve as pastors or elders. It's the same office. It's not two different offices. I don't believe it's the same office. And this list is very similar to the one that's in 1 Timothy. He also addresses that in 1 Timothy. It's a timeless list. And you'll notice uh, the masculine pronouns and him being the husband of, of one wife. This is an office, as Paul teaches, is reserved for men. He makes that very clear in 1 Timothy. And it's God's design that godly men be raised up to serve and lead in the church and in the home. Now, the big idea here is that these men are to be a contrast to the ungodly culture that is around them. They have been saved by grace, and their lives should show that, right? Truth in accord with godliness. They are mature in their faith, and it should show. They are to be godly. And if you want a godly church, it has to start with godly leaders. Now, note, note this. 
When you read through those qualifications we just read through, it doesn't say good looking. It doesn't say powerful leader, persuasive, popular, charismatic, successful entrepreneur, high business acumen. Those, none of those things made the list. It's not because they're bad things. It's just not primarily what God's looking for. It's about character and how they handle the Bible. It's about spiritual fitness and spiritual giftedness to teach. And if either one of those things is not there, no matter what they feel in their heart, they're not called by God to lead his church. So it's spiritual fitness and spiritual giftedness to teach others and to model for others how to follow Christ. So let's walk through the qualifications quickly. You'll notice they, they're all in the present tense. The idea was not to find some guys and make them elders and say, now live like this, right? We pull this guy out of whatever gutter and be like, okay, now we need you to straighten up because we need some leaders. That, that's not the way we're, no. He, go out and find guys. This is how, this is their reputation. Make those guys the leaders. Same thing uh, with deacons. It's another office that he talks about in First Timothy. It's a different office. It's an office, you know, uh, pastors and elders um, serve the church primarily by leading and deacons lead the church. They're, they're leading servants. They, they model what service is supposed to look like because everybody's supposed to serve. And they both have very similar Moral qualifications. And the idea is you find people that are serving. You find people that are walking with God. You find people that and they have this reputation for godliness and make those guys the leaders is what he's telling Titus to do. It's the present condition of their lives. They haven't always been godly. At one time they were lost. And they haven't always been mature. They had to mature. So what does he say about it? Well, the, the main theme of the whole thing is that phrase, above reproach. This word means blameless. Some translations even say that. It's the idea that nothing in his life allows someone to take hold of him. They can't accuse him of being a hypocrite. He's not perfect. He sins. But when he does, he properly repents. And the pattern of his life is one of godliness. The rest of the list is really Paul in a very concise but not comprehensive way of explaining what above reproach looks like in someone's present life. This is what it looks like fleshed out. And he addresses his family life, his character, and his teaching. And of his family life, he says he's to be, he says, the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Well, the, the Greek can also be the man of one woman. There's a lot of interpretations of this, and we don't have time to go through them all, but the least problematic and the, definitely the most likely, I believe, uh, and the correct one is that Paul is referring to a man devoted to his wife, not a flirt, not an adulterer, who has a reputation for being faithful to his wife, not a reputation for playing the field. He exhibits marital faithfulness. His children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. It's expected that his children grow to believe the same gospel he does and that he leads them well. If he can't lead his family to Christ, the implication is he's not going to do a great job of leading others to Christ. He needs to manage the home well, point his family to Christ. And children who are in his home who are rebelling against God and not living in accord with godliness and with the gospel, that pattern of life there in his home, he's saying that is a, that's, a, that's, that's not okay is what he's saying. People apply these things a different way, but he's being very direct here with the home life of the pastor, just as he is with the deacon. How he leads his home matters. And church leaders must lead their homes well because it starts there. You've got to model it in the home for you to model it in the church. The church needs that. The culture needs that. It starts at home. And then he gets into his character. 
And he emphasizes above reproach again, you'll notice. As one commentator believes, he addresses character issues here that mainly deal with how it affects how he would lead others. And if you notice that, there is a lot of things here that if they're not there or if they are there, the ones that say that they shouldn't be there, they're not going to help you in leading others, period. Not arrogant, right? Pride kills leadership. It makes a leader unwise and unteachable. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered. If he's quick to blow up, he's going to have trouble leading others who are going to sin and who are sometimes going to sin against him. Not a drunkard. He doesn't abuse alcohol or any other substance. He doesn't abuse those things. He's not, a, he's not violent. Not anywhere, including the home. He's not cruel. He's not a bully. Not greedy for gain. He's not looking to make a dishonest dollar or to use the ministry in a way to manipulate people for money. He's not filled with greed, but with the Holy Spirit. He should be marked by generosity, not greed. He's hospitable. One commentator said this means devoted to the welfare of others. It's been called the love of strangers. He welcomes and treats people well. Important in leaders. A lover of good. Right? He loves what's good, not what's evil. He's, he's self-controlled in wisdom. He controls himself, his tongue, his passions. He's upright. He lives a morally just and upright life. He's, he's holy. We're told to be holy because God is holy. He's disciplined. This puts back to the self-control and controlling his passions and desires. Now, here's the thing. As you run through those, all pretty self-explanatory, only Jesus is perfect in any of these areas. No pastor is perfect or sinless. Only Jesus is perfectly above reproach. Church leaders are to live in such a way that they have a reputation for godliness. Their behavior isn't to bring reproach on the gospel is the issue here. They're, they preach life change. They teach life change. Well, Paul is saying they should display life change. They should display spiritual growth and be on a trajectory of Christ-likeness. They should value and pursue godliness. And then he gets into their teaching. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict him. He was to remain in the word he was taught, not wandering off into false teaching and heresy and damaging truth, untruths. So hold to it firmly. He's got to know the Bible, believe the Bible, able to handle the Bible. Give instruction and to give rebuke. That's the positive and the negative side of preaching and teaching the Bible. Sometimes it's giving instruction. Sometimes it's offering a rebuke. Got to be both. The church needs both. We need both. And in a world filled with ungodliness and unbelief, the leaders of a godly church must obey, believe, and teach God's word. Doesn't matter if he's a great storyteller. Doesn't matter how funny he is. If he can't handle the word of God, not a pastor. Not be a communicator. That's not a pastor. Also, if they don't obey God's word, it keeps them from being able to properly give instruction and properly give rebuke because people won't take them seriously. So if they're to give instruction and at times rebuke, that means the church needs to what? Be willing to receive instruction and to receive rebuke. The church is to appoint and then to follow these godly leaders. That's how it works in the New Testament. He's telling Titus to do that. The way it works now is the church appoints the leaders. That's the way we work as a congregational church. And then the church follows leadership. Now, church leaders have the responsibility of setting the pace, of setting the example, of, of modeling Christ-like behavior. If you don't have healthy leadership, you can't have a healthy church. I grew up, I played a lot of sports teams growing up. I've watched a lot of sports growing up, more than I care to admit. And at the end of the day, every good team has good leaders. If you show me a team that is constantly with, filled with leaders, they're 
their best players, whatever you want to call them, are not modeling the right thing, but rather they don't come to practice and they badmouth the coach and they're lazy and they, they don't learn, they won't listen, they, don't, they treat their teammates poorly, they're arrogant and they're selfish. I'll show you a team that might get by for a little while on talent, but at some point everything will implode because every team needs good, healthy leadership where the leaders model the right thing, say the right thing, hold others accountable because you have all the talent in the world. But the team can fall apart for poor leadership. It's no different in the church. It's no different in your workplace. It's no different in your home. It's no different anywhere in any organization or any entity. You've got to have good leadership, and it's no different in the church. Churches need leaders who will model the right thing, do the right thing, say the right thing from God's word, and hold others accountable to God's standard in his word. Now, every believer needs to be a part of a local team, of a local church that gathers at least weekly to encourage and stir one another to live godly lives. We need pastors. You need a pastor. I need a pa- We need pastors. We need leaders. We need deacons. We need those things in our, in our lives, in our church, or God wouldn't have appointed it to the churches, right? So God intends for every church to have these offices, and he intends for every Christian to be a part of a church. So this must be something about us where, where we need these things. Now, North Park, for us personally, as we pursue godliness, we've got to strive constantly to seek to raise up and to appoint godly leadership. This text was about pastors, but in 1 Timothy, as we mentioned, he talks about deacons as well. We talked about what those guys, what deacons do. They too are held to a high standard of godly character. And if we want to be a godly church, we need to take things like deacon nomination and deacon election seriously and participate in it. And we aren't looking for warm bodies. Our goal is not to hit a number on a page somewhere. Our goal is godly men who will model godly service for Christ's church. Thankful for the people like that God's given us, and we're praying he gives us more. We've got to participate in that. We're looking for servants in the congregation who have a track record of godliness in their lives that we can appoint for that office, who have that reputation of service and Christ-like character. And we need godly men and women in general in our church to live godly lives of examples the community around us. The moral character and qualities listed in this passage are not just for leaders. They are actually mandatory for every Christian. You will not find a moral qualification on the list that is not required of every believer in Christ Jesus. The point is, if somebody's not willing to follow Christ in that way, if someone is not pursuing Christ like they're supposed to, if someone's not living a godly life, you certainly can't make them a leader. That's kind of the point. It's not that this is the super Christians and everybody else is supposed to live however they want to. We don't, we're all called to a high calling of living above reproach lives. Now look at verse 10. He says, he gives a contrast. That's, that's the leaders that he's wanting to appoint. And here's why they need to be do, these kind of leaders who instruct and who teach. Here's why. For, verse 10, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, we read this earlier, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. 
They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That brings us to our third point. A good church must confront ungodly belief and teaching. You could even say, and ungodly people within the church. But a good church must confront ungodly belief and teaching. In Crete, there was apparently false teachers who claimed to be Christian, right, who were moving among the churches, and they were proclaiming this, this, these false things that he addresses here. Their lives even indicated they didn't in fact know God, he says. These are religious teachers whose teaching isn't gospel and whose lives demonstrate they've never experienced the power of the gospel. He says in verse 10 of chapter 1, they were, it shows that they were apparently Jewish in nature. Uh, they were Jewish people who had professed faith in Christ in some way. And he says, because says, he says, especially those of the circumcision party, which denotes a group of Jewish people who professed Christ but believed people needed more than Jesus. They also needed circumcision for salvation. In other words, they were adding works to salvation in the form of, hey, it's not just enough for you to be a Christian. You also need to become a Jew, and you need to be circumcised. And he says they're, they're empty religious talkers who are deceiving people. They're, their message has no power. It's lacking gospel power. They're simply talkers. In verse 11, he says they've got to be silenced because they're hurting families. Now, that can mean like people that are meeting in house churches, which is how a lot of them met then, or it can mean actual households and families, or probably it entails both. In other words, they're doing damage. They're hurting the faith of people, leading people astray, confusing them. They're, they're hurting the body of Christ. And he says in verses 12 through 14, their prophet had it right. These guys fit the bill. He's not saying everybody at Crete's that way. He's not saying those Christians there are that way. He's saying these particular false teachers are the embodiment of the stereotype of their community. Their own prophet said this about them. Well, you know what? These guys are actually the fulfillment of that. They, they are liars and lazy drunks. Harsh words from Paul, right? Well, I thought Paul wrote the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. Maybe we'll do that another time. The Jewish myths here, he mentions, once again highlight the Jewish nature of their false teaching. The phrase, the commands of men, is reminiscent of when Jesus rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for exalting their commandments, their add-ons to the law above God's word. So very pharisaical in nature. He says, rebuke them sharply. In other words, take this seriously. So that they will repent and get sound in the faith because that's the goal. The goal of every reproof, every rebuke, every, the goal is always repentance. Not to show people up or to make people feel bad. So what you have here is a false teaching that is apparently rooted in the Old Testament law, but particularly the commands of men that have been added on to the Old Testament law in that day, the extra laws. And these people claim to know God, maybe even have a special, unique knowledge, almost Gnostic knowledge of God, and they, and they added works to Christianity because you've got to keep these purification laws and different things like that, and get circumcised and all this kind of stuff. It's not enough just to love, know, know and love Jesus. Jesus isn't enough. You need the law. You need these commands. You, you need the laws of purification, things of that nature. That's why he says in verse 15, to the pure all things are pure, to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. He's addressing the idea that these people believe that you had to keep the purification laws. His, his point is pretty simple. To those that have been made pure by the gospel, by the blood of Christ, all things are You don't need a purification rite. You don't need to examine the, the washings of the Old Testament. Or the, the, or the Old Testament 
stuff that stuff had been added on to the Old Testament by the Pharisees, like making you know washing your hands before you eat and stuff like that. They chided Jesus's disciples about. He said Jesus has made you clean, and he says, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. No matter what these guys do, they can go through every ceremonial washing they can come up with, but without Jesus, they're dirty. It's not coming off. They're impure. They're defiled. Their mind, their consciences. They, they've been untouched by the power of the gospel. And that's the big clincher here. They profess to know God, but they deny God by their works. They're not godly. And what we see here is that false teaching, ungodly teaching, and ungodly belief, ungodly holding to false things and treating them like they're true when they're, when they're wrong, is deceptive and it's deadly. Nothing is more poisonous than teaching that takes the good out of the good news. Nothing. And here, work-centered salvation is a clear part of their teaching. And Paul says, these guys aren't even fit to do good works. <clears throat> Why? Because they haven't believed the good news. Any teaching or belief that makes salvation more about you, <laughs> that belittles Jesus and his sacrifice, that allows people to stay in their sin and deny God by their works or their behavior, is deadly. It's deadly. We see it in our own forms today even starting to creep into what we would call evangelical Christianity with people that want to pick out certain sins and rip them right out of the Bible and say, well, that's not a sin in this culture today. They profess to know God, but they would preach a gospel that would deny its power to rescue people from sin. Let me ask you, if you found out your favorite restaurant, your favorite restaurant, I mean, you, the one you go to for anniversaries and birthdays, Orlando Sentinel had an article in there that said they had been placed, started, they found out they had recently been slipping traces of rat poison into the dishes. Would you skip it your next birthday? Maybe. I mean, right, it's, it's deadly. It's, it's poisonous, right? I mean, you're like, but the view's awesome, right? I really love the location. I really love this one dish and your friend... If you had a friend or a spouse that would look at you, they'd say, but they, they put rat poison in the food. That'll kill you. But it's a beautiful view, and they serve my favorite dish. Maybe there's not rat poison in that one. No, you, you would never go back, and you would pray for the health department to shut it down, and it would be a just prayer, right? You'd want justice because we take poisoning bodies seriously, and we need to take poisoning souls seriously too. Because rat poison will kill the body and heresy will kill the soul. It will condemn. The true gospel of Jesus delivers us from works-centered salvation projects. We don't, we don't do good to get forgiven. We are forgiven, so therefore we do good. We, we live in response to the good news. Not to earn God's favor. The, the true gospel of Jesus changes lives from the inside out. Rather than create people who profess to know God but deny Him by their works, it produces godly people who know God and glorify Him with their works. Rather than being disobedient as the character quality, they're obedient. A godly church and a godly believer will value life change. A godly church is not satisfied with nominal, lukewarm, cultural Christianity. A works gospel creates a legalistic slave to religion a prosperity gospel will create a greedy slave to prosperity. The pure gospel will set people free to love God. Follow Christ. False teaching always puts an idol 
in your life, either religious or cultural, in the place of Jesus. And sometimes it'll do so, listen to me, in the name of Jesus. And it will take an idol and it'll build it right there and call you to worship it. So beware of places in your life where you are prone to, to not believe God or to not trust God. That's a place where a lie can be believed and an idol can be built. So if you go through financial hardship and you have trouble trusting God with your financial resources and you just know that about yourself and you turn on the TV and you see some guy that calls himself a preacher that's just a communicator and he's telling you, if you'll do this and you'll do this, God will solve all your financial problems and it usually has something to do with giving money to him. He's offering you an idol, not Jesus. False belief will lead to either denying the gospel truth or denying the gospel power. It will usually lead to error in both belief and behavior in some fashion. And on a smaller level, even a believer, someone who loves and follows Jesus, can be led to believe wrongly or behave sinfully because we are deceived into wrong thinking about God and His Word. That's why much of the New Testament letters we have Paul is addressing false teaching. It's a big deal. Now, there are some things that are a bigger deal than others. But when it's about the gospel, and it's about Jesus, and it's about, is this the word of God or not, and how we treat it, and is Jesus and what he did enough, and, and, and just the, the very nature, those things are non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. The church must beware of false teaching, avoid it, and seek to correct it. We must all watch our lives so as not to slip into it. This is another reason why we need to be faithful to a good church. Only a deceived person would think they never, they never need their thinking or their behavior or their believing challenged. Or corrected. Only an arrogant person would think that. I know I need mine challenged and corrected. Every godly Christian needs to be a part of a good church. A godly church. Every godly church is made up of godly Christians led by godly leaders. And let us be a people that value and pursue godliness, that appoint and follow godly leadership, and that confront ungodly or false beliefs and teachings within our own body, right? Or ones we might be prone to fall into. It warns against that. And it confronts those that refuse to walk in line with the gospel so that they might repent and walk in step with the gospel. Every godly Christian needs that in their life. Now listen, we can only be godly because Jesus because of Jesus and the gospel. We can only be good because the gospel's good news. Because the Bible tells us that no one's good, no not one. Right? We're, we're, we're sinners. And that's why Paul opens up his letter. It's about Jesus, our Savior. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, the Savior. I'm an apostle of God, I'm a servant of God, our Savior. It's, 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 the God, it's Jesus and his gospel that saves. And so in a book where he's going to talk a lot about doing good things, you'll see him over and over again in chapter 2 and chapter 3 come back to the gospel because it is the gospel that changes our lives so that we do good things. It's the gospel that reconciles us to God so that we live in line with God as opposed to trying to correct our lives and get them in line with God so that God will then accept us. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus who the sinless Son of God who bled and died on a cross not by happenstance but by choice as the plan of God in the place of sinners like you and me. Who bore our sin in His body. Who took the punishment, hell, wrath of God that we deserve. Who was risen from the dead victoriously. 
It's that gospel, that good news of the person and work of Christ that changes people and makes us, in God's eyes, good. God, let me ask you, do you believe the gospel this morning? Or are you just religious? Do you profess to know God but deny Him with your works? My encouragement to you this morning would be to rest in the one who did all the work. Rest in Christ this morning. Maybe this morning, the way you need to apply this is you need to join a church. Maybe it's this one. This is where you're being led. And this is where you're being fed. Excuse me. This is where you're being fed. This is where you're being led. We need you on the team. If you love Jesus and you, you consider this your church, we need you to take the next step. We, we need you on the team. God's brought you here for a reason. He's given you gifts and he's empowered you in a certain way to serve the church. Maybe as a faithful North Park member this morning, you can use this outline in this chapter to begin to pray, to remind you to pray for our leadership, to remind you to pray for our people to pursue godliness, and to remind you to pray that God would protect us from false teaching and false beliefs and things that would lead us astray. Let's seek to be a godly church. That's the kind of church God says is.